0: All right, I want to ask you to turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 10 and follow along. That'll be our main text today. Quick reminder, we started a sermon series last Sunday and with this Lord willing will carry out through the next several months, probably until Easter going through the gospel of Luke. but we're not, Studying all of Luke because that would cover a lot. That could take the whole year. We're focusing on the middle section in Luke. It's called The Journey to Jerusalem. It starts in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, where Jesus resolutely sets out to go to Jerusalem, or he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. But he doesn't arrive in Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke until chapter 19. So there's about 10 chapters where Jesus is on his way to his death. He's on his way to the cross. So that's what we're studying, that middle section in Luke. And most of those teachings, parables, stories, interactions are unique to Luke's gospel. And that's what we're using as our guide these next several months, titling this series, Outsiders. Because on this journey to Jerusalem, you're going to see that Luke presents to us Jesus' heart for those who are outsiders. I want to start with this question and kind of get your mind thinking. Maybe use your imagination a little bit, but imagine you're in public. Wherever that would be, wherever it is that you go, if you go into a public setting, a restaurant, maybe you're out at some public event, or you go to the mall, Mall of Longview, if anybody still goes to the mall, or maybe, maybe you're at the park, wherever it would be. Just imagine yourself out in public where maybe somewhere you normally go, And while you're out in public, you notice that there's somebody there that is in distress or danger or pain, some stranger. You don't know who they are, but you can tell there's something wrong. How do you respond? What do you do when you're out in public? So kind of kick that question around, think about it for just a little bit. And I can tell you that I've seen this scenario played out many times. On social media and the news over the last decade or more. Time after time, I'll see sometimes horrendous videos. Sometimes they're just arguments or kind of a verbal altercation. Sometimes a physical altercation. But you'll see videos of this happening. And what are most people doing nowadays? Can anybody guess? Most people, when they're in the crowd and something bad is happening, somebody's in danger or trouble. They're filming it. Okay, there's something called the bystander effect, which refers to somebody in danger, some kind of trouble in public, and bystanders just sit idly by and do nothing to help. A few years ago, the New York Times came out with what they call the digital bystander. And this is kind of just a glimpse of what you see all the time. I'm not saying everybody in America does this, but this is kind of the reaction. Oh, somebody's getting attacked. Oh, something horrible, a fight is about to break over, out over here. Somebody's getting robbed. I better pull out my iPhone and just start filming it. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen videos where I thought, put your stinking phone down and go help the person. What in the world is wrong with you? Now, some people would argue that or counter-argue that and say, well, if you film it, it provides an eyewitness. You know, it exposes the criminal activity. Okay, that could be true. But most of the videos I've seen, why aren't you helping? Why are you just filming? Why are you just being a digital bystander? Today, we're going to study the parable of the Good Samaritan over the next few minutes. Probably one of Jesus' most familiar parables. Most people with even just a little bit of biblical knowledge are familiar with the Good Samaritan. You know what that is. And a basic takeaway, if we're going to understand and apply the Good Samaritan, what does it mean? Well, kind of on a baseline level, just help somebody. Do a good deed. You see a stranger in need, help them. It's what Jesus will end up calling being a neighbor. That's what He refers to it as being a neighbor to someone. So that is a basic takeaway of the Good Samaritan. We could end the sermon there and I could just say, hey, go do good works, go do good deeds. And maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But I want to take the next few minutes to go through this the whole text, the dialogue between Jesus and the teacher of the law and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And even if you've studied this a hundred times in your life, hopefully you can hear it with fresh ears and, and we'll discover together that although that is true, a basic takeaway of the Good Samaritan is to help someone, there's also a lot of depth to this parable. There's many layers to it. So let's just walk through it, starting in verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I do not, by the way, a lawyer is not like what we think of as a lawyer today. A lawyer means an expert in the law of Moses, the Torah. So that's the kind of lawyer that's coming up to Jesus. And this question that he asks about eternal life is coming from probably a, not a great place within this guy. The motives aren't great, but the question's not bad. If you're a person of faith, You'd probably be interested in the answer to this coming from the Son of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Some authors point out that the question itself is flawed because if you think about an inheritance, you you receive an inheritance just by being a blood relative to someone or being adopted into a family. You can receive an inheritance because of that. You really don't do anything to earn it. You're just family. So maybe the guy's question is flawed, or maybe he's just trying to trap or trick Jesus. Either way, how does Jesus answer it? Well, Jesus comes back to his question with another question, a counter-question, as Jesus often did. Jesus responds and says, what is written in the law? What do you read there? So most of these experts in the law, religious people, religious leaders of the time, uh, this is kind of more of a modern picture, but they would, they would wear certain things, including a phylactery, which was a box around their head that contained within it Hebrew scriptures. Taking the Deuteronomy 6 and other passages from the Old Testament very serious to bind them on your head, you know, tie them to your arms or whatever. So they would put scriptures in a box and wear it. And so maybe Jesus was looking at this guy, pointing at his phylactery, saying, how do you read it? What do you think is written in the law? What's your summary of the law of Moses? Well, this guy gives a great answer in verse 27. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. If anybody has paid any attention to something I have preached on over the last year, where does this come from in the Old Testament? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. Deuteronomy 6, and it's called the Shema. All right, I've mentioned this on multiple occasions. This is central to Judaism and Jesus' teachings. But then this guy adds the extension to it. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. It's a great answer. Where does he get this from? He doesn't come up with this summary of the law on his own. This guy, obviously, he's a copycat. He's he's heard Jesus teach this before. This, the combination of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, that's known as the Jesus Creed. This was Jesus' summary of the law. So this man is just reciting back to Jesus what he's heard Jesus teach, probably on multiple occasions. So Jesus says, you've given the right answer, do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked... He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So even though his motives aren't from coming from the greatest place, I think these are two good questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Look, if you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's an important command, yeah, I want to know the same thing. Who is it exactly that I'm supposed to love? And I believe the way this guy is asking the question is he's asking, what are our limits? Where do we get to draw the line? Another way of asking it maybe would be, who is my neighbor and who is not my neighbor? Who are the insiders that we are required to love? Who's like us, who thinks like us, shares the same political views and religious views that we do? We will love those people but who are the outsiders who aren't like us that we're not required to love? You see, I think that's what this teacher of the law, this expert in the law was looking for. Who are we not supposed to love? Well, Jesus, instead of giving this guy just an, an answer, giving him some requirements, instead of asking another question, Jesus now tells a parable. A parable in uh, Hebrew is called a mashal. It's an ancient form of storytelling, maybe kind of like a riddle. It's a teaching device that rabbis would often use, and Jesus perfected to stimulate your imagination instead of just giving you the answer to really make you think deeply. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to read it, verse 30 through 35. Follow along with me. Like I said earlier, you've probably heard this a hundred times before, but maybe God will speak to you in a fresh way. Sometimes that happens. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half-dead. According to one scholar, that's scene one. There's seven scenes in this. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That's scene two. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, scene 3, and now scene 4, verse 33, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, and having poured oil and wine on them, I guess that would be scene 5, scene 6, as then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, so the transportation, and took care of him. And then scene seven is the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. I'm going to mention a few different times over the next few minutes, an author named Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he really helps us to see Jesus through not American eyes, but Middle Eastern eyes and how The original audience might have heard this. And one of the things that Kenneth Bailey points out is there's seven scenes, seven being the perfect number in the ancient world. I've never thought of the Good Samaritan that way. Really, there's seven different little scenes. And what I want to do is just break down this parable. So it starts with scene one. There's a guy who suffers a criminal activity. He's beaten up, he's robbed, and he's left half dead on the side of the road. And then scene two, you have the priest walking down the road. Now at face value, you just see, okay, the priest walks by on the other side and he does nothing to help. So shame on him. But what Kenneth Bailey points out is a little bit of history helps us understand a few things. For one, most priests in that time would have lived in Jericho. And if he's on the the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which would have been about 17 miles, he probably just served a two-week assignment in Jerusalem at the temple. And now he's headed home. So two weeks of working, time to go home and relax. And on his way home, that's when he sees this guy beat up on the side of the road. But there's several problems, problems that this priest has to face, this dilemma that he's in. And one of the most basic ones is he sees this guy, and he doesn't really know who he is, but he looks like he's possibly dead. So if a priest touches a corpse, he is now ceremonially defiled. And the priest knows that according to the law of Moses, if he were to touch a corpse, he would have to then, instead of going home, return back to Jerusalem and go through a one-week time period where he is ceremonially purified before he can go home. He doesn't want to mess with all that. Man, two weeks of work and I just want to go home. So the priest, maybe using the religious excuse of the ceremonial, you know, whether or not he would be pure or impure, he used that excuse. He keeps walking on by. Well, then the Levite comes in the next scene. He walks on by, does the same thing the priest does, doesn't stop. Well, a Levite was a priest's assistant probably had just served a two-week assignment with the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. He's traveling down the same road, going home to Jericho, but he's behind the priest. So the Levite knows the priest saw this same guy that's half dead on the side of the road, and his leader, the priest, didn't stop. So the priest has already set the precedence. What's the Levite going to do? Is he going to help this guy and show up in Jericho with a wounded man that the priest walked by and upstage the priest? He's not going to do that. So even though there would be some risk involved with the Levite, he takes the easy route, he follows in the footsteps of the priest, and he walks on by. And then you get the Samaritan. So here's where there's a twist in the story. The original audience would have expected a priest, a Levite, and then the Jewish layman who would have also served in the temple. So that's what they're expecting is the third person walking by. But instead there's this huge twist. And Jesus said, now a Samaritan comes. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. I talked about that last week a little bit. There was a long-standing hatred between the two groups. <coughs> we looked at Luke chapter 9 last week where Jesus, on His first stop, on His way to Jerusalem, He tries to stop in a Samaritan village and they won't receive Him because He's headed towards Jerusalem. And James and John, because of this hatred, they said, Lord, do You want us to call down fire and consume this village? We want us to wipe them out. And that's just a small glimpse Given you an example, you look at John 4, the woman at the well, when Jesus goes to Samaria, how Jews and Samaritans did not interact with each other or like each other, they were enemies to each other, and yet Jesus tells a parable where the enemy becomes the hero. You know, following along with this outsider theme, the Samaritan is the outsider. This parable would have been shocking and provocative and offensive to this teacher of the law and to anybody else in that first century listening to it. When the priest and Levite walk by and do nothing, they're religious leaders, but this Samaritan, this outsider, this enemy, he's the one that stops. There's a Bible professor named Amy Jill Levine who was a New Testament professor at Vanderbilt University, and not long after the 9-11 attack, she was teaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And she said that one of the best ways for us as Americans to really understand and grasp The sting of this parable, it would be like a modern day parable where you say two church leaders walk by and do nothing, and then the third person that walks by is a member of Al-Qaeda, and the member of Al-Qaeda stops and helps and does everything the Samaritan does. 20 years after 9-11, it may not have quite the same sting to it as it did 15, 20 years ago. But you get the idea if you lived through 9-11. That would be highly offensive. A member of the terrorist group, of the the enemy group. you know, A guy named Josh Graves wrote a book called How Not to Kill a Muslim, which the title itself sounds offensive, but he did it with the help of Muslims. But the point was he was sharing how similar Jews and Samaritans were to each other and how much they hated each other to Christianity and Islam. And so Amy Jill Levine is is kind of taking that same route, and she's saying, look, if it's offensive to you to say that, that is how they would have felt when Jesus said a Samaritan becomes a hero. And what is often missed in this parable is that the Samaritan actually takes a really big risk. Because not only does he administer first aid, but he puts this wounded man, we're assuming, somebody talked to me about this after the first service, that we're assuming, and I'm assuming, that the wounded man is a Jewish man. So the Jewish man is put on an animal of a Samaritan, and he takes him into the nearest town, which would have been Jericho, which is a Jewish town, into Jewish territory with a wounded Jewish man, and he's a Samaritan. That's a big risk. Kenneth Bailey said uh, the best equivalent that he could think of would be like in the 1850s. If a Native American's walking down the road and he sees a cowboy in the ditch with two arrows in his back and he's been attacked and beat up and this Native American stops to help the cowboy, puts him on his animal and enters into Dodge City surrounded by a bunch of other cowboys, what are they going to think? They're going to probably assume that the Native American attacked him and they may attack and kill the Native American. Well, it's similar to how the Samaritan is acting here. He's walking into Jewish territory with an injured, wounded Jewish man, and he is a part of the enemy group. That's a big risk because they could kill him. They could take out community vengeance on him if they wanted to. That's an often overlooked part of this parable. So again, this is a response to the question of who is my neighbor. Jesus tells this parable. It's kind of open-ended. Now we return to the dialogue between Jewish and the teacher of the law in verse 36. He said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? If you notice, Jesus never answers his original question. The original question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then after some conversation, the next question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable and then I guess if you're looking for an answer, you basically could say there's no one who is not your neighbor. Jesus' view of neighbor is very broad compared to their view of who a neighbor is. Jesus is basically saying anyone in need, no matter their race, no matter their background, no matter whatever it is that may be different from you, they're your neighbor. And really what Jesus is turning this into is who can I become a neighbor to? Who can you become a neighbor to? Instead of limiting yourself and thinking, who is my neighbor, who's not my neighbor, he's saying, who can you become a neighbor to? Well, in verse 37, this section ends with, this teacher of the law says, the one who showed him mercy. It's been pointed out many times before, that the teacher of the law does not say the Samaritan, because of that hatred between the two groups. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So this whole section, which is unique to the Gospel of Luke, um, it's what we've come to know it as, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Very shocking, provocative, and potentially offensive to the original audience, and it can be to us, too, if we let it. So I want to go back to the question I started with. You're in a public place. You see somebody in danger or pain or trouble. How do you respond? If I were talking to you one-on-one and I ask you this question, I imagine most of us would say, of course I would help. Of course I would intervene if I saw somebody in trouble. Or at least I'd call 911 because we have good intentions and we have a tendency to view ourselves as the Samaritan, as the hero in the story. But for the next few minutes, let me just dig into that a little bit. There's an author that I really like, Peter Schizero, and in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about how we all have this shadow side to us. You could also call it your false self, as some church fathers have called it. But the way Peter Schizero describes the shadow side to who we are are those hidden motivations deep within us that affect our behaviors that doesn't come from a good place. It's probably the most ungodly places within us that sometimes we don't even realize we have, but sometimes our shadow works more than the, the new creation in Christ. So if you look at it from that perspective, that we all have this kind of shadow nature to us, and we look at the Good Samaritan, we say, yeah, I'd be willing to help the person in the ditch. Whoever that may be or whatever that may look like, but it depends on a few things. It depends on whether or not Somebody will notice me. Who will notice me? I'm willing to help, but I want to make sure I get credit for it. I want to make sure that somebody praises me, congratulates me, takes a picture of me, brags about me on social media. As long as that happens, then sure, I'll be willing to help someone. Now, you may not admit to that being your motivation. That's that shadow side. Maybe that's you if you're being truthful. Maybe you'd be willing to help the person in the ditch but it depends on who is in the ditch. There's a lot of people that we would bend over backwards to help, but who's in that ditch? Maybe we have subconsciously, or that shadow side, that false self within us, some prejudices that we don't even realize that we have. Back to that professor, Amy Jill Levine, she said that really the deepest way to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan and that sting that it brings with it is to place yourself in the ditch. And if you're the wounded person, you're not the priest, you're not the Levite, you're not even the Samaritan, you're the wounded person in the ditch, who is the very last person that you would want to look up and see them coming to your rescue? Who do you hate? Who do you despise? Who's your enemy? Well, who's your enemy group? A person, a group of people, whoever it may be. And what she's saying is that's how you can truly grasp the depth of this parable. So you reverse that around, and yeah, you're willing to help and be a good Samaritan, but it depends on who it is that I'm helping. Or maybe you could say, or your shadow side says, I'll help, but it depends on why they're in the ditch. Why are they in the ditch? Is it because they're ignorant? Is it because they're on something? Is it because they're not lazy and not willing to work? We have these judgmental, this judgmental side of us, this judgmental nature to us that, again, can happen subconsciously, a part of this shadow nature that prevents us from truly being a neighbor. The list could go on and on. If you're being honest with yourself, you could probably come up with some things you're like, yeah, that's the shadow side of me working. So Jesus is asking, who can I be a neighbor to? And truthfully, we probably put limits where we shouldn't put limits. Maybe we're kind of like the priest and the Levite who they had their justification, they had their reason for why they did not stop. Who knows? Maybe in a different scenario, a different day, a different time, a different person in the ditch, maybe the priest and the Levite would have stopped. So are we like the priest and the Levite? We had these limits. And what I think Jesus is doing with this parable that can be so challenging and difficult to deal with is to face your shadow. The few things that I listed right there and beyond, I think this parable causes us to face our own shadow, that false self. And if we can learn to deal with that... What Jesus is doing through this parable and through this whole on-your-way section is He is freeing us up to truly love others, to have no limits to our love, to be willing to be a neighbor to someone, not acting out of our shadow self or our false self. And then there's, you know, one more way of looking at this parable. Is if you think theologically, and some people will point this out, and I don't want to Stretch the parable too much, but thinking theologically, some people would point out that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the Good Samaritan. That we as human beings are in that ditch, wounded by sin. And what the religious leaders and what religion could not do is save or rescue. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the Good Samaritan and He comes through And he rescues, and he takes the biggest risk of all, like the Samaritan does, risking his own life in order to save us, save others. So in that sense, Jesus offers us this act of mercy, and it's up to us whether or not we will receive it. So I'll conclude with this. May we as a church, as individuals, as families, be willing to be that good Samaritan. So that basic, baseline understanding of this parable is to be willing to help others and do good to others. But may we also be willing to be a neighbor to anyone and everyone and have no limits to how and who we are willing to love. And may we be people who receive this great mercy that Jesus is willing to give us on the cross. This morning, if you have any prayer requests, if we can help you in any way, Tony's going to stand back up, lead us in a few more songs. I'm here. A few of our shepherds are here. We're willing to pray for you, or just be here to talk to you if you need us at this time. I want to invite you to stand, and we'll continue to sing. When peace like a river.